Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Morkronin, and today we're discussing the future of Canada. That means we'll be discussing mandates, frozen bank accounts, Bitcoin, and the fight for freedom. Or in other words, why the Freedom Convoy movement may be Canada's Tiananmen moment. And specifically, we'll talk about what's the deal with the Freedom Convoy protests? Why did they start? What's the impetus to protest these mandates? Also, how has the Canadian government responded? What have they done to quell these protests? And what's next for Canada and the world? So depending on how these protests turn out, what does that mean for the future of Canadians, the future of Americans, and the future of people all throughout the world? I'm sure you are familiar with this iconic photo from Tiananmen Square, where a Chinese man walking back from the grocery store decided to stand up in front of a armored tank. And no one knows what happened to this man afterwards. He was disappeared. And this is often referred to as the beginning of totalitarian modern rule in China and the end of freedom in China. And we're also seeing a similarly iconic photo just recently of this Canadian mounted police trampling a protester, a woman in a mobility scooter. And I think the stakes are at a similar level. And we could be at a situation where this could be a turning point for Canada to become more of an authoritarian country, or it could be an end of authoritarian rule and the protesters could win. So I think the stakes are pretty high, depending on how this turns out. But now let's set the stage and just give the whole picture of how this protest started, what it's all about, and what the response has been. So why did this Freedom Convoy protest start? Well, the protesters were fighting against this vaccinate or quarantine mandate for truckers. Basically, the Canadian government issued an order that any trucker coming into Canada would have to be double vaccinated or they would have to quarantine for 14 days. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this doesn't make any sense at all. The first reason is that we know the vaccines don't prevent transmission, so it would have a more realistic argument if these vaccines actually prevented transmission. But when you can be vaccinated and still spread the virus, doesn't make a lot of sense that you would require people to have to be vaccinated even though they can still spread the virus. The other reason is that Fauci has already said that the virus COVID-19 is now endemic, much like the flu. There's pretty much no chance that we could totally squash COVID-19 for all eternity. And so the idea that if we get enough people vaccinated, this will be the end of COVID-19 for good, no one really thinks that's the case anymore. Those days of hope are behind us, and now we have to deal with COVID as an endemic virus. So the calculation is much different when we're considering what needs to be mandated for individuals. And the most obvious reason of all why this doesn't make sense is simply the fact that truckers are alone in their trucks delivering essential goods without really having any exposure to anyone else. So they're not much of a threat to anyone else's health. Uh, maybe they stop at a roadside diner to get some coffee. But other than that, they're pretty much isolated alone in their trucks. And furthermore, 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated. This is more than the general population, which is only 84% vaccinated. So it seems like we would already have reached a level of vaccination that would be enough for herd immunity among the truckers. And why would you care so much about this final 10% of people that aren't getting vaccinated. Maybe it's because they've had adverse reactions in the past. Maybe they have some special health conditions. Maybe they have religious reasons. Whatever their reason may be, 
if we are going to try to force this 10% of holdouts to get vaccinated, they're simply not going to. And so then you get into the question of, are you going to create a second tier of society, basically second class citizens, people who have not gotten vaccinated and who don't have the same rights as regular Canadians? And this is incredibly dangerous. The only other times I can think of there being some situation where there's a second class of citizens would be during the segregation era of slavery or during the Holocaust, basically having fewer rights for 10% of the population. And the best term for it that I've heard is medical apartheid. And this is what Trudeau and the Canadian government are trying to create is a form of medical apartheid within Canada. So now let's talk about how has the Canadian government responded to these protests. There was something like 50,000 trucks that set out to Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada, to protest these mandates and these measures. And they didn't only go to Ottawa, they went to many different places throughout Canada. It's known as an inkblot strategy, so it's hard to fully squash the protests because they're not just in one place. They're all over different parts of Canada. So let's look at how Trudeau and the government have responded to these protests. The first thing that Justin Trudeau did is name calling. He basically dehumanized the truckers and called them a small fringe minority of people who are holding unacceptable views. And then in a later interview in French, he said, they don't believe in science and they're very often misogynistic and racist. It's a small group of people. They take up space. This leads us as a leader to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? So again, he's using lots of dehumanizing terms and it's a really bad negotiating tactic as well because as soon as you call your negotiating counterparty misogynists and racists, it's hard to then make a deal with them. So this was a huge unforced error on Trudeau's part and it made it very hard for him to make a deal with them after the fact because right out of the gates he comes out basically vilifying them and not trying to hear their side at all. The second thing that Trudeau did is he tried to essentially wage siege warfare on these truckers. So the truckers are protesting in near zero degree conditions. And so they need a lot of gasoline in order to keep their trucks hot and to keep themselves going. And so Trudeau issued an order to start confiscating fuel from the truckers. Well, guess what happened? Thousands of people, normal Canadian citizens, go into Ottawa and these other areas carrying petrol so that it was almost impossible for the government to crack down on all of these people giving petrol to the truckers. And to make it even trickier, some of them would literally fill it with Gatorade and drink out of it. And so it was really hard for the Canadian police to know like what's actually gasoline, what's just a gasoline canister filled with something else. So this was a pretty brilliant strategy from the protester side. And interestingly, a lot of the local provinces in Canada have responded favorably to the protests. Many provinces have now actually ended their mandates and ended their mandatory vaccine passports. This includes Quebec and Ontario. However, the federal government has not been at all favorable towards the protests. They have instead taken a brute force approach. And you can see here, there's this video of all of these soldiers or military police officers who have their badge numbers covered and they look like stormtroopers. And many people have said that these are not local Canadian police officers. They may be UN troops. I saw one video that showed a UN plane landing in Ottawa. 
And if you are on the right side of history, there's no reason to cover up your badge numbers. So the fact that Trudeau is taking such an authoritarian approach here, it shows that he doesn't have the real support of the people, of the local police officers. And to some extent, they know that they're on the wrong side of history here. They know they are squashing people's rights. Here's another video where you can see the Canadian police officers or maybe their UN military officers actually pulling truckers out of their cars forcibly and beating them. And it's hard to know how extensive this behavior has been, but certainly they have used more use of force than we've seen in previous protests. And a good comparison is the Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States that lasted for like two years. And there was people camped out right in front of Wall Street in Manhattan. And they didn't have any kind of use of force like this, trampling people with horses, pulling them out of their tents or cars and beating them. So this really is a level of force that the Western world hasn't really seen in the past. I love this photo where you have this Canadian man, a trucker with a nice beer gut and a Canadian beanie on, sunglasses, smoking a cigarette, shirtless in the freezing cold, just standing off against this military officer. And this just shows that there is such incredible level of courage here. And a lot of these truckers have already had their livelihoods destroyed and there's really nothing left for them to lose. And so they are making a stand here. And I think one thing Trudeau doesn't realize is how important this cause is to so many Canadians and how they will not back down. So even if they get the protests cleared out in some areas, it's very hard to squash this spirit of freedom, of wanting to have the same rights that you had just a few months ago, right? It's not like they're asking for some crazy new rights that never existed before. Canadians are just asking to preserve the rights they had. And that is incredibly reasonable. And it's amazing there aren't more people vocally supporting these truckers and vocally criticizing Trudeau's government and the authoritarian response. This really is the single most outrageous thing that has occurred so far, which is Canada is now freezing bank accounts, not only of people actively participating in the protests, but of anyone who has donated to the protests or even posted about the protests on social media. So here, I'll let you hear it from the Finance Minister of Canada. So you're confirming that accounts have been frozen, both personal and corporate, but you're not releasing the information. And the actual follow-up is, um, I'm just wondering whether the bank accounts will be targeted of individuals who donated to the Give, Send, Go and the GoFundMe campaigns. Are they considered designated people under the Emergencies Act, meaning that their credit cards could be cut and financial services are targeting them as well? Okay, so the names of both individuals and entities as well as crypto wallets have been shared by the RCMP with financial institutions and accounts have been frozen and more accounts will be frozen. So there you have it. Canada is now freezing the bank accounts of its citizens and they already froze the GoFundMe, which was made to support the truckers. They also froze the Give, Send, Go, which was another effort to support the truckers. And now they're also trying to freeze crypto wallets and Bitcoin wallets. However, this only works if you keep your Bitcoin on a regulated exchange. So if you keep your Bitcoin on Coinbase, Coinbase is regulated by Canada, they operate in Canada. Yes, you could have your Bitcoin frozen or taken by the government. 
But if you keep your Bitcoin in self-custody, if you have your own keys, there is no way the government can freeze that wallet. It simply is impossible. And so here's a great response from one of the non-custodial Bitcoin companies in Canada called nunchuck.io. And here's their response. So they were ordered to freeze the Bitcoin addresses of their users. And here's what they said. Dear Ontario Supreme Court of Justice, Nunchuck is self-custodial, collaborative multi-sig Bitcoin wallet. We are a software provider, not a custodial financial intermediary. Our software is free to use. It allows people to eliminate single points of failure and store Bitcoin in the safest way possible while preserving privacy. We do not collect any user identification information beyond email addresses. We also do not hold any keys. Therefore, we cannot freeze our users' assets. We cannot prevent them from being moved. We do not have knowledge of the existence, nature, value, and location of users' assets. This is by design. Please look up how self-custody and private keys work. When the Canadian dollar becomes worthless, we will be here to service you too. Sincerely, the Nunchuck team. <laughs> so I absolutely love this because it really gets at the core of what the power dichotomy is with this protest and this movement. The power dichotomy is that the Canadian government has much greater kinetic power. They have many more troops, boots on the ground that they can mobilize. But the protesters have something even more powerful, and that's Bitcoin, the only financial asset in the world that cannot be frozen, cannot be seized, and cannot be manipulated via inflation. And this is only the beginning of this movement. And I'll say this, I would much rather be on the side of the protesters and the cypherpunks and the Bitcoiners than I would be on the side of these statists and these governments and these really communist-style bureaucracies that are trying to squash people's democratic rights. All right, now let's get into the future scenarios. Let's start with the worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario I call Canada has fallen and this would be a situation where Canada, much like China after the Tiananmen Square crisis or Hong Kong after the Hong Kong umbrella protests, is no longer a free country. And this would be terrible for Canada. It would be very sad for Canadians who are patriotic, who love the nature there, love the culture, love the friendly people. But it would not be the end of democracy or freedom itself. Many Canadians, many of the smartest, talented, most free-minded individuals would leave Canada. They would go to freer places like El Salvador, like Latin America, like parts of the US, like Texas and Florida and Wyoming and Montana. There are many places people can go to if they have to leave the country that they grew up in and the country that they've loved. I also think it's important to understand the game theory here and one of the key reasons why I'm so optimistic about Bitcoin and freedom, as opposed to fiat and oppression, is that the fiat system is leaky. It is not a closed system. As people store their wealth in fiat, that wealth leaks because there is always being new money printed. And so over time, it's like, a, imagine you have an engine and it's not an efficient engine. A lot of the energy is constantly leaking out into the air via heat. Well, that's pretty much how the fiat system works. Bitcoin, by comparison, is a closed system. 
it is a way for preserving energy, not wasting any energy, and you can never create more than 21 million Bitcoin. So just by looking at these two systems side by side, as the fiat system gets more and more inflated and people have less and less wealth, Bitcoin becomes more and more desirable. And this is true whether you're a protester, whether you're a mounted police officer in Canada who realizes that, holy shit, my police pension is becoming worth less and less every year. Even for those people, and even for authoritarian people in power, like the Justin Trudeaus of the world, even them, at a certain point, they will realize that, hey, I should probably have some amount of my wealth in Bitcoin because the fiat system is leaking wealth. And I am constantly on this treadmill where the more fiat I acquire, I am still leaking my wealth because they keep printing more and more at a faster rate. And when you actually think about how this plays out, the more people that exit the fiat system and start to store their wealth in Bitcoin, the more they have to keep printing money in the fiat system to keep the illusion alive. And so it becomes very similar to what the plot is in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, where all of the really productive people, all the entrepreneurs, all of the innovative people that create real value in society, they decide to leave because the regulations are so oppressive and their rights are being squandered. And so they opt out of the unsound system and they opt into a sound money system. And so this creates a positive feedback loop where I am 100% optimistic that over the long term, the fiat system has no chance at winning. The Bitcoin system will 100% win. It's just a matter of how painful it is to get there and how various countries decide to adopt Bitcoin at different stages and which countries end up being the big winners and the big losers. That is still to be determined. But the design of the system itself is pretty self-determining for where the world economy is going to end up. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario is what I call tip of the spear. This would be Canada being the tip of the spear in the fight for freedom. Imagine there is enough pressure on Trudeau from his own people, from his own police officers, from other members of the global international community, that he does end the mandates and the truckers win. They leave their occupation because they have accomplished what they set out to, which is ending the mandates and restoring the freedom they had just a few months ago. Even if this were the case, it wouldn't be the end of the battle because Trudeau needs to have a crisis. If there is not one crisis going, then people will start to realize that the real crisis is a monetary one. Right now, the nominal crisis is COVID. These are why the mandates are in place. We have to protect your health. There's this dangerous pandemic that we have to have these emergency powers in order to quell the pandemic. That's the rationale. And it's kind of ridiculous when you consider where we are in the pandemic and how Omicron is much less severe, it's already endemic, the vaccines don't prevent transmission, so the argument on the face of it is collapsing. And so it seems quite likely that eventually it will totally collapse, and COVID won't be a valid excuse to spend all this money and to have all these emergency powers that you wouldn't normally have. However, they would have to create another crisis, because the real crisis is the towering debt, and basically the fact that Canada is insolvent. They cannot pay all the debts that they owe without stealing from the life savings of all of the Canadian citizens via inflation. 
And you can predict a world war simply by looking at the debt to GDP ratios. And our current debt to GDP ratio is higher than it was even at the peak of World War II. And we're supposed to be in peacetime now. Well, if the COVID pandemic ends, I can guarantee you that Justin Trudeau or whoever the new leader is, is going to introduce some other crisis. Now, that crisis could be cyber terrorism. It could be cyber hackers, maybe from Russia. It could be Russia versus Ukraine in some kind of hot war. It could be a China-Taiwan situation. It could be some climate catastrophe. So who knows what the crisis would be that would replace COVID. But I guarantee you, they're not going to just let things go back to quote-unquote normal because there is no normal when we have this amount of debt. The government needs cover to print away the wealth of all of its citizens. Otherwise, they'll realize that the whole crisis is actually the bureaucratic mismanagement of the monetary system and the necessity of a new system to arise, either one that's based on freedom and sovereign individualism, a la Bitcoin, or one that is based on top-down totalitarianism with CBDCs, a la the Chinese Communist Party, but made for the West. So sort of a woke version of Chinese Communist social credit scores for Western countries like Canada. All right, now let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario I call losing the battle, but winning the war. So imagine a situation where the Freedom Convoy protests eventually do fizzle out, kind of like Occupy Wall Street. Eventually people just leave. There's not enough energy. There's not enough support or they get totally cleared out. Regardless, if the convoy protest ends in a loss, it ends in defeat, what would likely follow is that people will be persecuted across the board for contributing money to these protests and even for vocalizing support for the protests on social media. There have been cases of people getting knocks on their door because they just posted on Facebook about that they are in support of the Freedom Convoy. So really scary authoritarian stuff going on. But I don't think the Canadian government has fully thought this through because once you start going after regular citizens and they start to be worried about, oh my gosh, is my bank account going to get frozen? Am I going to not be able to get car insurance because I vocalize support for the protesters? Then people start to lose faith in the system. And the more the Canadian government cracks down, the more people wake up and decide to opt out of the system. They decide to opt out of the Canadian banks and the regulatory services that can be cut off at the stroke of a key. And they will instead enter the Bitcoin community, which is the only community where their wealth is preserved. It's inconfiscatable. And this creates that feedback loop that we just looked at with the leaky system of fiat moving towards the closed energy system of Bitcoin. And it's worth looking at what happened with the protests in Hong Kong. And they really did protest even harder than the Canadians did. They had incredible tactics. Whenever a tear gas canister got shot out, they'd put a cone right over it. They used laser pointers to prevent the police from seeing them and surveilling them. They had all of these incredible tactics. But one thing they did not have was Bitcoin. And this is the key difference. Canadians have Bitcoin. The truckers are already getting Bitcoin donated to them. And this is the key difference why I think Canada and the trucker movement will eventually win, even though the Hong Kong umbrella protests eventually lost. 
And we can actually see here, this is already taking shape. If you just look at the Google Trends for how much search interest there is for the term bank run in Canada, it is through the roof. We are seeing the highest level of searches for bank run in Canada. It's also been trending on Twitter. So a lot of Canadians are taking their money out of the bank simply because they're afraid their bank accounts could be frozen. So I think this is a big unforced error on the side of the Canadian government because now even regular citizens who maybe they only slightly supported the protests, now they are worried about their own wealth and they are looking at alternatives. The other reason why I'm so hopeful is that many other countries are rising up. The Freedom Convoy protests are not only in Canada, they're now spreading to Australia. Here's one video from Canberra. They're also spreading to Israel. Here's a convoy of trucks heading to Jerusalem. They're also spreading to France. Here's a Freedom Convoy arriving in France. And there's even Freedom Convoy in America now going to different parts of America around March 1st is supposed to be the big day of the American Freedom Convoy. Now that we've looked at the future scenarios, I want to end this episode by going over some basic Bitcoin privacy best practices. A lot of people think that Bitcoin cannot be used privately. They think you have to use some other coin like Monero, and that's simply not true. You just have to use the best practices for privacy, and you will have a great level of security for Bitcoin. It's worth noting that no one has found the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, so that proves that you can be incredibly private on Bitcoin if you do it the right way. So the first thing to understand is that not your keys, not your coins is probably the single most important phrase you can remember. And what this means is if you don't actually own your own keys to your Bitcoin, then you don't actually own any Bitcoin. All you own is a claim on Bitcoin. So if you hold all your Bitcoin on Coinbase, you don't really own Bitcoin. You just own a claim on Bitcoin. And Coinbase only has so many of the actual underlying asset, but then they rehypothecate it. They lend it out to many different people. And so if there were a quote unquote bank run on Coinbase, you may or may not actually end up with any Bitcoin. So the number one thing you need to do is hold your own keys. Now you can do this by simply having a software wallet that is self-custody, meaning if you use something like Moon, M-U-U-N, you have your own private keys and you don't have to have a hardware wallet. It's literally a software wallet just on your phone, but you're the only one who has it. Moon couldn't even go around and give your information to the government, even if they wanted to, because the system is set up where you are the only one who have your private keys. And you can also write a backup of it. So even though it's just a software wallet, you can have your 12 words written down on a piece of paper or a steel plate so that this is actually a very good early solution before you're ready to upgrade to a full-fledged hardware wallet. When you are ready, I would recommend a hardware wallet like Cold Card or perhaps Blockstream Jade. And this is basically a Bitcoin only device that is super secure. It's not connected to the internet. And so it holds your private keys on there. And so you don't have to worry about any kind of cyber hacks or government stealing anything. You literally are the only one who have your keys. It's in your hardware wallet. And you can rest assured that you cannot have your wealth confiscated if you preserve your wealth in this way. 
You can also get a steel plate as a backup. So you can literally have your 12 words punched into a steel plate. So even if your hardware wallet is destroyed, you have this backup recovery and you can simply get a new hardware wallet and then recover it using your 12 words and then you still have the same wealth that you had before. If you want forward-looking privacy, so let's say you were given some Bitcoin, but the Bitcoin now has been come from an address that the Canadian government is trying to crack down on. So you got Bitcoin from one of the addresses that has been targeted. What are you supposed to do? Well, it's really no problem as long as you do a coin join. A coin join basically mixes up all the Bitcoin, so it's impossible to tell where the Bitcoin came from prior to the coin join. And it's really easy to do this. Samurai wallet is a great option. There's also Sparrow Bitcoin wallet, and these make coin joins very easy. And here's a great visualization of it. It shows a bunch of different Skittles in all different colors, and it says your UTXOs normally, and then it says your UTXOs after coin join, and all the Skittles are brown. And that's a great way to think about it because prior to a coin join, you can trace back where each Bitcoin came from, from the beginning of when it was originally created and it was mined into a block. But after a coin join, they're all mixed up. And so it's pretty much impossible for them to know where the Bitcoin came from. So coin join is a great way to get forward looking privacy. And if you want privacy from the very beginning, from how the Bitcoin itself originated, there's two ways to do that. One way is you can actually mine Bitcoin and you don't need to provide any information if you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is buy a miner, set up your own node and start mining, maybe join a mining pool. The other way is you can use one of these non-KYC exchanges. So BISC, B-I-S-Q, is a decentralized exchange where you can literally trade Bitcoin with someone else and there is no intermediary. There's no third party that's sucking up all the data and that can then give that data to the government. It's literally just regular people peer to peer trading Bitcoin for things like Amazon cards or different crypto or cash or any number of ways that you can actually transact without having to give up any information. And the last privacy best practice actually comes from Satoshi Nakamoto himself. He said, quote, for greater privacy, it's best to use Bitcoin addresses only once. And this is totally easy to do in Bitcoin. Every time I do a Bitcoin transaction, I create a new wallet. It's really easy if you're using Electrum or really most Bitcoin wallets already have this capability. And when you think about it, it is impossible to track every single wallet address if they're only being used once per transaction. And then if everyone does coin joins, again, it's, it's another level of impossible for them to track that. And then if people start to migrate to non-KYC exchanges, it's possible yet a third time. And so there are so many incredible capabilities enabled by the Bitcoin network that as long as you follow privacy best practices, the asymmetric power is on the side of the Bitcoiners of the freedom fighters, of the protesters. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you all for tuning in. And I'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. The past, the present, and the future, baby. What's the world coming to? The past, the present, and the future.
breath.